During tough times, people will sometimes turn to unreasonable means for survival. And in the midst of the American Prohibition and the subsequent Great Depression, a new roster of outlaws reared its head. Among that roster was John Dillinger, who lived a short and fast life robbing banks and running from J. Edgar Hoover and the recently formed FBI. Despite only living for three decades, his legacy has influenced numerous books, films, and documentaries. Let's find out why, today on The Gems of History. Running from J. Edgar Hoover. That's a uh, <laughs> the new one. That's, that's gonna <laughs> sounds, be this week's running. Sounds like a horror book. <laughs> running from J- <laughs> running from a guy in a dress. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Get back here! But he has the entire arm of he, the FBI, and he also just looks like a mobster. <laughs> oh, he's the most like evil-looking lawman. I oh think. yeah. <laughs> if you look at pictures of him, he does not look very kind how tall was he i want to know how tall he was because he doesn't look very tall i'm calling five nine five seven really he's a little guy kind of interesting john dillinger also five seven wow and he captured america's heart maybe he just wanted to be the better five seven <laughs> it was a duel of the short kings <laughs> yeah. hey it's average height kings all right yeah average height kings. Whoa, 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 <laughs> now whoa, whoa. now it's short kings <laughs> right back, right back then they're probably like almost taller than people oh yeah you were six foot and you're a giant yeah but yeah it was just a battle between the letters that, the names that start with j that's what yeah, they were honestly, really i like that he just didn't want to do even use his first name and then john dillinger was like just use my last name don't even use like an initial for my first name just call me dillinger yeah and then there was a bud light campaign of dilly dilly yep that's there. actually what's based on wow wow weird Look at how everything comes around. Fun facts. Speaking of coming around, welcome to the Gems of History podcast. Oh. I'm your host, Jacob Shop. Joining me, Evan Roosh. Yeah, coming right around the mountain. That guy. That's me. When she comes. When she comes. <laughs> Can we get copywritten for that song? That would be very funny if that's the one <laughs> that's where we got, one got gets flagged just immediately. From, just U- from when she comes, we get a letter <laughs> in the mail. UMG's like, shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have a business address, so good luck finding true, true. us. <laughs> yeah, we don't have. A, we don't even have PO box or anything. Can so. you imagine? Like they have to listen to different sound, like entire our entire catalog of episodes just to piece together where we might be. <laughs> right, like in the general vicinity. Yeah. And they're like picking out small sounds, trying to figure out like, well, they were outside near something this time. Did you actually see that some guy on the internet, he saw a video of someone eating a sandwich and in the video, the man eating the sandwich is like, this is the best sandwich I've ever had. I'm not telling where I got it from. Oh, is it the guy that like tracks streets and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. And he found the restaurant, called it, and asked them to name the sandwich after him. And then they did. Really? (laughs) I think his name's like Ballpoint or like Roll, something like that. I don't actually know what his name is, but insane. Those online like geo tracker guys are nuts. I've seen the videos of those guys. It's like 45 seconds. And there's like, I searched this street because I found it was near this avenue. And then it was. Probably in this locale because of the housing structures. Like, what? <laughs> You're way smarter than I am. Right. Like, that's 
its own TV show where Boy Genius joins the FBI or something right, like yeah, that. Right, yeah. You're in the long, wrong line of work if you're just using YouTube to display this talent. You're doing that talent for YouTube ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> to sell, like, to, I don't want to disdain. To your 15,000 subscribers. <laughs> right, to sell Carl's Jr. <laughs> Throwback. <laughs> or, uh, I guess, preview. <laughs> Evan, are you ready to talk about some gangsters today? I am. I honestly... Honestly, the FBI probably could have used that guy to track John Dillinger because they struggled. Is in the research, you kind of forget that they just simply didn't have communication systems outside like the telegram, which like in the field, that's not going to do you any good. I mean, they had phones, but... But yeah, you had to go for <laughs> Good <it>. luck. <laughs> you had to pay off Thomas Edison to use it, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gangster Squad uh, with Ryan Gosling and uh, I don't remember who the lead guy is, but... Um, Emma Stone's in it. They show like the racketeering for the the betting and the phone lines and stuff, and just all of the boards where they have to plug in the different lines and stuff. Can you imagine that that nightmare? Can you imagine being, yeah, an being operator? the person having to operate? Yeah, and the, I bet that's probably what every suburban mom like their ideal job would be. Just oh, like yeah. get all the tea. Just like during the war effort, when everyone's writing the letters back to. To soldiers' families and stuff like that. Just... She has to stand in line for a dirty letter or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I wish to see thou ain't without. Thou ain't. Wasn't that long ago. <laughs> this is the crusade times yeah. now. But yeah, John Dillinger is truly one of the most fascinating personas, I think, in American crime history. Oh, for sure. And it's very evident in this time that the American public is anti government, anti bank, anti establishment. Like Al Capone, another huge figurehead at this time. Uh, this is when the mafia starts getting their comeuppance. And Dillinger's bigger than all of them. All of them. Public, he gets to be public enemy number one. For the first time ever. The first ever, yeah. That's nuts. Like this guy, not, you know, any war criminals or right. anarchists that are also spotting off during this time. Well, and he's working with people like Babyface Nelson, who's just an absolute psychopath. But who's, strong. And he's strong yeah. name. Like and, strong name. And he's murdering everyone, but John Dillinger's the one that's got all of the credit for everything because he's the one that's masterminding it all. Right, right. And he's also John Dillinger is also one of those figures that there's just so much myth around him. Yeah. Like we'll talk about the most preposterous one involves a snake. I won't give any more context. <laughs> we'll get to that at the end. Yeah, but um, but also like there were reports that like they got accredited with bank robberies that they didn't even do. Like when they were across the nation, sometimes just because you know it's that I guess not scapegoat, but the public eye is just on this man. Yeah, and also helps that you got to say he's pretty good looking. He is. He's he's, he's got like the perfect look to be a gangster. Oh my gosh, with the slick back hair too. And the little thin mustache and everything. Oh yeah. Do you remember watching Public Enemies with uh with uh, Johnny Depp? Johnny Depp, yeah, that movie was I watched it a so really good. long time ago and I completely forgot about it until I watched a few scenes from it. I'm like, yeah, I definitely have seen this movie. Yeah, this is a strong, strong movie. It has Christian Bale. Yeah, has he Channing plays Melvin Tatum, Melvin like, Purvis, yeah. I also love that they cast Christian Bale as Melvin Purvis, because Melvin Purvis was this skinny, nerd-looking dude. <laughs> oh, very nerdy man, and Christian Bale's character in that movie is, well, he's like... He's Christian. Th- he's, yeah, exactly. It's Batman-era Christian Bale. <laughs> yeah, this is, he just got done whooping the Joker, Heath Ledger's, rest in peace, ass. <laughs> right, so, yeah, not not like a skinny nerd in the Chicago FBI. No, no. 
Uh, but we will get into all of that as we go. So, are you ready to dive on in? Let's dive this on is, this in. This is quite I the topic. My, I have my Tommy gun loaded. I have my fedora on. Getaway drivers here, just in case we royally screw this one up. How about the invention of the car? People being like, wow, we can all afford these cars. It's like, uh-oh. And the cops are driving <laughs> Model A's. Yeah. <laughs> They're all driving V8s. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh. So John Dillinger, he was born on June 22nd, 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana, known as John Herbert Dillinger at birth. He was referred to as Johnny during his childhood years, and from an earlier age, he led a small neighborhood gang that they called the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. He was Don't all... know if there's actually 12 of them. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I mean, if they were skipping school, they probably couldn't count too well. True. But yeah, he immediately kind of shows that life of crime i mean we'll you'll get into more of his upbringing as to like why and like what was happening in his early childhood but from the start public enemy number one is just a life ho- of crime oh, me and my homies absolute hooligan <laughs> yeah uh so the dirty dozen and johnny would commit small-time pranks and petty thefts and but despite all of that many of the dillinger's neighbors would say that johnny was a generally good kid who didn't seem to get into any more trouble than the rest of the kids in the neighborhood so he didn't really stand out as far as being more mischievous than anyone else right he's not well he eventually gets arrested but at this time he's not really doing like hard crime like he's doing like more kid stuff like kid gang no hard crime no hard time yeah (laughs) he stole a jolly rancher from the bowl at school for two cents (laughs) for yeah (laughs) however his record would eventually say otherwise uh because accounts elsewhere would claim that he was a delinquent portraying malicious behavior as early as a teenager and as we'll see by his later life, it seems that kind of both descriptions are probably true in some part, and part of the reason for that is probably attributed to his father. Johnny was younger, uh, the younger of two children born to his parents, John Dillinger Sr. and his mother, Mary Ellen Lancaster. And John Sr. was a grocery store owner in the neighborhood, and he also owned some rental property in the area. And they did pretty well for the family. They lived in a middle-class neighborhood didn't really stand out as better off than anyone else they just kind of worked the area and they were they were neighborhood people yeah i mean they just blended in for lack of a better word i mean they were a family that you've seen a thousand times like on halloween they probably handed out candy i'm sure they didn't because that really wasn't a tradition yet but you get what i what i mean oh have you ever seen pictures of early hollywood costumes where they're wearing like sacks on their heads and stuff oh it's very scary terrifying (laughs) it's scary but it's not supposed to be exactly (laughs) it's probably very innocent at the time just any picture in black and white is a little menacing oh 100 percent like, even with FDR sitting in the wheel, <laughs> in his wheelchair, being like, oh, God. It's is like, that- get up. Yeah. Get up. I don't <laughs> trust you, sir. <laughs> he was ripped, though. Uh, unfortunately, Johnny's mother died of a stroke when he was only three. So he got raised for a little while by his older sister, Audrey, who was 15 years his senior. So his parents had a long gap before they had another kid. And I think that's part of the reason why Johnny kind of got the short end of the stick as far as getting raised. I mean, other than the fact that his mother died, but right, yeah, the parents were probably like, "We're never having kids again." Oops, actually, <laughs> fifteen-year gap. That's yeah, that's a lot. But yeah, she Audrey raised him for a year until she herself got married, and then shortly after that, John Senior got remarried when John Dillinger Junior was nine, and his dad continued the household theme of disciplinary extremes and. 
what I mean by that is John Sr. alternated a lot between disciplining and then spoiling his son, sometimes beating Johnny with a plank from a barrel, and then other times giving him money to go out and get candy. Or other days he would lock Johnny in the house, and then the next day he would let him roam around the neighborhood all day. So it was very back and forth, push and pull relationship that he had with his father. And not a single time during any of this, I'm guessing, guessing Johnny Sr. never stopped to ask how are you? Yeah. <laughs> was, what do you want to do? It was either he's hitting with a plank or, hey, go get a gumball. And it's not that he's spending time with his son either. He's right. just sending yeah. him off to the world. <laughs> or keep him inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give him money and send him away. Yeah. After growing up with his group of little scoundrels and pilfering coal from railroad cars, Dillinger dropped out of school at age 16 and began work at a machine shop where he, it was said he excelled. He was really good at working with his hands and kind of taking stuff apart, putting it together. So after about a year of that, John Sr. sold the grocery store and the properties that he owned in Indianapolis and decided to move the family into a country town outside of Indianapolis called Mooresville, Indiana. He kind of moved hoping that this change in scenery would help his son stay out of trouble, but resisting his father's wishes, Johnny continued to work in, in Indianapolis at the machine shop, commuting there on his motorcycle. Yeah, it's hard to tell a teenager what to do. <laughs> right, especially one who's already committing crime. <laughs> the, dirt, the head of the dirty and dozen. And dropped out of school. Right, right. And like he was a small, like he only grew to be 5'7", but like he was still like a smaller kid too growing up. So that led to him also getting picked on. Right. I believe I saw in several cases. So you already kind of see that he's starting to become like a little bitter at the world, like at, from a, a very young age. I mean, I don't think he never really gets to be all that big. Like he's mm -hmm. never built or anything like that. He's never this huge, imposing guy. He's just kind of an average Joe, an average Joe, but heck of a haircut. Heck of a look. He looks good. He's he's a heck of a looker. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> he made made all the ladies in those days oh, show show their ankles <laughs> for some reason or another. <laughs> yeah. Johnny's activities escalated at this point in his life and eventually saw him staying out all night, partaking in drinking, fighting, and supposedly visiting prostitutes. And things eventually came to a head in July of 1923 when Dillinger stole a car outside of a church in an attempt to impress a girl. Man, the things we do for love. <laughs> <laughs> Wish it was that easy. The Kia boys are trying that theme again. It's all just been about getting some tail. Getting some <laughs> That's girls. why you can't drive a Kia in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Johnny initially got away, but when he was questioned by police later, he acted suspicious and they arrested him on the charges of stealing the car. And proving to be slippery from the beginning, John Dillinger got loose from the officers and ran away. He knew he couldn't go home, so instead, he said, I'm going to go sign up for the Navy, and did so the following day. <laughs> what a way to get out of going to jail for stealing a car. Just, you know what? I'll take my talents to the ocean. The armed force. World War I just ended. There's not going to be another one of those, so it's probably a good time to join. And he's like, man, the war to end all wars just wrapped up. And I can't believe that the, it's perfect time for me to escape yeah, conviction by joining the military. I'll sail to she. <laughs> so he did make it into the service, but quickly realized that he was not cut out for a rigid military life and yeah. jumped off of the ship while on board the USS Utah ending his five-month stint in the military and later being dishonorably discharged. Very funny that he went through basic and, like, boot yeah. camp. Like, from our conversations, like, the truly grueling part of, 
like physically grueling part of military service. And then, and jumped, then he jumped off, off a ship. ship. <laughs> <laughs> a ship that would later be hit in Pearl Harbor. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, not it first saw John Dillinger leave and then it said, I'm done. Yeah, I'm going to go. That was sink. the last straw. <laughs> yeah. Johnny returned back home shortly after he left the military and met and married a girl named Beryl Ethan Hovius. Quite the name. <laughs> Ethan was the middle name? Ethan. Okay, yeah. If you say that too fast, it's like Beryl Ethan Hovius. <laughs> but having the birth name of Beryl, like it's not spelled B A R R E L, it's B E R Y L. But if I'm ever calling a girl Beryl, I feel like I'm insulting her. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Either that or she's just a, a unit. Oh, her dad was a dick. <laughs> yeah. Just not a good name all around. But at the time, Johnny was 20 and she was 16. So, very young. And with no job or income, the couple swapped back and forth between staying at the Dillinger farm and then going to Beryl's parents' house while John found a new job in an upholstery shop. Just making up some couches. Not bad. Just working with his hands. He's good at it. During the summer of 1924, while playing on the local baseball team, John met a man named Edgar Singleton, and the two became fast friends and began to hatch a plan to rob the local grocer for cash. What one does in the dugout of baseball games? He's just sitting there chewing on seeds, and all of a sudden, some robbery comes about. (laughs) John would grab the goods while Singleton waited in a getaway car down the street. That was their plan. So, putting that plan into action, Dillinger assaulted the grocer on his way out of the store with an iron rod wrapped in a a handkerchief. Not sure what that does in this scenario to help. Well, make sure it's not too sharp. Don't want to get blood on your iron rod. Yeah, (laughs) there's only so many. (laughs) (laughs) However, the grocer turned as he was being hit and grabbed Dillinger and the gun he had, which discharged a shot. And then Dillinger at the time thought he had shot the grocer, so he ran away to find that the getaway car that was supposed to be occupied by Edgar Singleton was empty and was shortly afterwards caught by the police. So the guy bailed. Absolutely. He's like, I gotta get out of here. There's a gunshot. Yeah, he heard the shot and he was gone. The local prosecutor convinced John Sr. to tell Johnny to plead guilty in order to get a more lenient sentence. But when he appeared in court alone and pled guilty, Dillinger was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, despite the fact that it was his first conviction. Yeah, this was a real shock to Johnny here. Like, he did not expect to get a 10-year sentence for this. Like, yes, he did assault and committed a robbery, but like you mentioned, it's his first offense at this point. He did not expect this. And this really made him, again, like I mentioned before, He's already starting to be bitter, but this is what makes him very bitter at the world. Well, and he's going into court alone. Like, he doesn't have anyone defending him. His dad doesn't even go with him. Dad just said, say you're guilty. Yeah, I'll send you off with some cash for candy again before you go to court. Yeah, (laughs) dad, I'm 16. But then at the same time, Singleton, when he got caught, would be convicted for 2 to 14 years with prior convictions already. Right. And he only served less than the minimum because he had a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. So, it's... It's very obvious why someone would be upset in these circumstances. Granted, he was the one that assaulted the grocer, but they were both in this plan together. Right. You know what? Like, I've never planned to rob a bank, but I'd, if we both robbed a bank in a theoretical situation and I got a 
harsher sentence than you, I'd be a little peeved. Yeah, a little <laughs> upset, just because I had like ten more dollars to pay someone to defend yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, right. I wonder what lawyer the fees were back then. But anyway. So recounting this event later in life in a letter to his father, Dillinger would write, quote, I know I have been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I did too much time for where I went in a carefree boy, I came out bitter towards everything in general. If I'd gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this would have never happened. End quote. It's kind of that debate of when a youth in the situation gets in trouble, do you either throw the book at them and think that that'll reform them or have some grace in in certain cases and maybe they turn their ways around then. Right. I mean, we don't hear about the other fella being public enemy number one at any point. <laughs> exactly. So you have to kind of pick and choose here. He just went back to playing baseball. Yeah, he's like, I have a sick curveball. Don't mess this up. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It, I think in this case, it's just worst case, worst, like a worst case scenario in an already kind of mm-hmm. rough situation for someone where this guy, he's just trying to make a living. Like he's trying to live life in a kind of weird time in American history. Yeah. I mean, he's growing up during the Roaring Twenties, everything's really good, and then as he gets older, things start to not be good anymore. Yeah, and things are sick, and now they're not sick. He just doesn't really have anyone there to guide him. So. Right, yeah. So, while that quote from Dillinger may not be entirely true, I maybe he would have ended up the way he did regardless of whether he got sentenced super harshly or not, prison didn't help Dillinger, to say the least. He was sent to Indiana State Reformatory, where he did play on the prison's baseball team, and he works, worked as a seamster in the shop. He excelled at the work. Once again, he was an upholsterer before, so it makes sense that he'd be good as a seamster. And he frequently finished double his quota and then would go on to help the other men who weren't as adequate at the job fill their quotas. And obviously, that makes you quite a bit of friends in, in prison if you're helping other people. And a couple of those were Harry Pierpont and Homer Van Meter, who would later join Dillinger after his time in prison. All while keeping a 1.3 ERA on the, <laughs> on the prison baseball team. And he's getting that batting average up. Yeah, he's batting 500. Like, can you imagine his baseball card? <laughs> oh. I if he was, like actually made it onto a team where he got a card, can you imagine what that'd be worth? That's can you imagine if he signed it? That's big <laughs> That money. would be a... While serving time, Dillinger saw his wife and family frequently at first. He would write love letters to Beryl, speaking of his anticipation of being back with her. However, after a few years, Beryl couldn't handle the separation anymore and officially divorced John in June of 1929, just two days before his birthday. Quite the birthday gift. That sucks. (laughs) Served some divorce papers. Right, like, is it a cake? No. <laughs> is it a cake with a file in it? No, it's no. a cake with divorce papers divorce in papers. it. Divorce papers. Hooray! Oh. <laughs> Dillinger was heartbroken, stating, quote, For four years I had looked forward to going back home, and now there wasn't going to be any home to go back to. End quote. Yeah, he literally lost everything. I mean, he robbed the store with zero dollars to his name, and he's going to leave prison without a wife now, and yeah. zero dollars to his name. And I... <laughs> As much as he is like a hopeless romantic where he gets all gushy about stuff like this, Mm -hmm. he also moves on to new women very fast. (laughs) I'll say it, the man's a hoe. (laughs) He is a hoe. But he is dedicated when he actually finds a woman that he does like, so I'll give him that much. But after they're gone, he doesn't wait very long. 
As if to throw salt in the wound, Dillinger was also denied parole just a month after being divorced. And after this double dose of rejection, Dillinger asked to be moved to the harsher Indiana State Prison, stating that they had a better baseball team. <laughs> That's why he wanted to go. Yeah, they're formed through grit and snipers on the bell towers. It's too easy for me to hit homers out of the, out of the yard at this I need place. a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, he wanted to transfer because that was where Pierre Pont and Van Meter had gone. And they were kind of becoming his mentors at this point in mm-hmm. jail because he, he's in there for a while and they were also bank robbers. so probably learned from these guys yeah he's learning a thing or two for sure how to throw a curve but all right that's enough baseball (laughs) jokes evan but yeah he's definitely learning from people that have done it before and who have had success with it before and we'll talk a little bit about like what the banks that they typically targeted were like but this is a very it's weird to say formative years because he's already in his 20s but this is he's He's getting the blueprints oh, yeah. this, this of his is life of crime. Very much forming what he's going to be for the next 10 years of his life. <laughs> yeah. So despite this request being granted, Dillinger quickly realized he wasn't going to do very well in these new dwellings because, as I mentioned, it was more rigid and his mood fell pretty quickly. He started skipping playing on the baseball team and pretty much just consumed his days by working in the shop. But one thing that he did do during this time was talk to those fellow inmates of his, and he reconnected with Pierpont and Van Meter, but also made connections with other seasoned bank robbers who were imprisoned there, such as Walter Dietrich, who worked with a bank robber named Herman, Herman Lamb, who had used his German military prowess to meticulously plan for his bank heists, which Dillinger would definitely learn from. Oh, yeah. What? What? <laughs> Gotta give credit where it's due. German military, pretty good. Very, very regimented. And you get a very certain set of skills, which I guess only transfer in certain ways. (laughs) Definitely. Among his prison friends, Dillinger was the first to be done with his sentence. So once he got out of prison on parole in May of 1933, because his stepmother was dying, Dillinger met up with a few of Pierpont's homies, and they started to string together some robberies. And this is kind of a sad spot in his life because his stepmother kind of became his mother to him Mm -hmm. since he never really had one. And so they let him out to go home to go see her because they knew she was dying and she died a few days before he got back home. So he didn't even get to say goodbye to her. But I guess it was a good reason for him to get out and he's finally not in prison anymore. So Right. It's another notch in the emotional trauma belt. Yeah, it's a very Catch-22 release. John Dillinger is different in his aspect of robbing because he didn't steal just for profit. He stole to fund a prison break for his friends. <laughs> like, he's not just keeping all of this for himself. He is one with the homies. <laughs> yeah. He's down. Like, if you're down with him, he's down with you for sure. And he will get you out of a lot of sticky situations. Oh, for sure. With two accomplices, Dillinger was set to put his plan into action in late September to break his friends out of prison just two months, or not two months, just months after his parole. And he and his cohorts began when they walked into a bank in New Carlisle, Ohio, and robbed the place in barely five minutes since they faced basically no resistance. They took $3,500 and got away completely free. Only a week later, armed men got into a shootout with police in an attempt to free Frank Nash, who had recently escaped prison but had been recaptured. Frank Nash was just kind of another gangster. And in their rescue attempt, Nash ended up dead along with four law enforcement officials, and it is now known as the still-unsolved Kansas City Massacre, 
But this event jump-started J. Edgar Hoover's push for an official war on crime, and this just timing-wise coincided perfectly with Dillinger's start of bank robbing. 100%. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover and his war on crime, which by extension eventually becomes FDR's war on crime, this event, like if you remember last week when we talked about Hollywood scandal, right, and like how that dominated the uh, news cycles. And there's a mass shooting like this. Yeah. And there's only certain ways to consume information, receive information. Like this was a national headline. It was also an embarrassment to law enforcement at this time. So J. Edgar Hoover now is starting to push for completely reforming the Bureau of Investigation into now the Federal Bureau of Investigation, meaning that he wants to actually arm agents, which were not allowed it before then. He yeah. wants to give them the ability to. Uh, make arrests, which also wasn't yeah. a lot. Like the the Bureau of Investigation before it turns into the FBI, really couldn't do much. Yeah, like they, they were, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they were just there to log evidence and like truly be a informational center. Yeah, and I mean, in 1933, there was only like 600 agents right. in, in the entirety of the FBI, and yeah, they just didn't have license to carry guns, so yeah. they didn't do really anything in the field. They're at the Kansas City train depot, like, stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, they're going up against Tommy guns, and I mean, Dillinger's gang, not saying that this one was, but like, typically bank heists, like, they are armed to the teeth at yeah. this point, like, they are coming for war. Right, and especially at this time period, you have, like, the Valentine's Day Massacre yeah. with Capone and his guys, and then you have the Kansas City Massacre, so now they're just kind of piling up, and Hoover says, we should probably do something about this. <laughs> oh, right, like, there's bodies and bodies and bodies, and Hoover actually... With the Reformation, there's the Lutheran schooling for yeah. you. For you. <laughs> the Reformation of the uh, Reformation, you get what I mean, of the FBI, uh, he also makes it a very public campaign. Oh, very much. Like with the institution of literally producing a comic book like about the G-Men, which yep. were known as government men, which were supposed to be these, like the classic, like, clean shaven in suits and ties like guys that are superheroes but they're everyday people just busting crime it's and like proto men in black pretty much totally totally yeah. and edgar hoover j edgar hoover is very good at manipulating the public and using the different channels to get the public opinion on his side because for his purposes like he needs the public opinion to be on his side so he can keep his job Right. Right. Like he, and to his credit, I mean, he's the head of the FBI for a long, a long time. time. Yeah. The FBI is the way it is because of J. Edgar Hoover, for sure. Right. Like he started taking down John Dillinger and he doesn't stop until I believe it's like 1972. Yeah. It's like, that's a 40 year run. It's a good stint. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is crazy because Dillinger is the reason why he reforms the entirety of this agency. So without Dillinger, there really isn't the FBI as we know. Well, I'm sure someone else would end up coming up, but like, right. it wouldn't have happened as quickly if not for Dillinger and his gang. Yeah, he realized that we're outgunned, outmanned, and yeah. we need to put something or do something to stop these immense amount of bank robberies, which one of those things should have been 
to make that a federal offense, which it wasn't yeah, yet. Probably would have helped. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't yet. Like all these different bank robbers had to be handled by uh, or murder. That would or, also be good to add to the or list also of federal. Murder. Yeah, yeah. We do not talk about that. Wasn't a federal offense nope. yet. It was just you know what state police can handle this. But it also took a long time before people actually knew who the FBI was. Like, despite <laughs> all of the propaganda stuff that Hoover was pushing out, like a lot of people. The common people down south, especially, did just didn't know about it because a lot of it was based in the Midwest originally, like Chicago yeah. area and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was a, it took a while for it to catch on. Right, the FBI agent shows their badge, and people down in Louisiana are like, "What? You are not a federal agent. Get off my lawn. Right, Get out of my swamp. What's federal? Yeah, right. Oh, you mean confederal?" <laughs> <laughs> But regardless of all of this new intervention by a federal agency now, Dillinger continued on his spree of robberies. He hit three more banks in the next month, and he set his precedent for his robberies by jumping flamboyantly over the counters, but also being a gentleman as he committed his robberies. He hit Montpelier Bank in Indiana, netting another $6,700. Bluffton Bank in Ohio for another six grand, and then Massachusetts State Bank in Indianapolis for a whopping $21,000. Now that's a payday. Like we're talking the 30s. Like that is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, it seemed at this point pretty much like he was uncatchable. There was nobody even getting close to stopping him. Him and his gang had been planning everything out so well that it was just kind of clockwork at this point. They were very meticulous. And given the fact that there was new V8 cars being introduced and Tommy guns were available for criminals pretty much, police just couldn't keep up physically with their cars because they were driving Model A's. Right. And they just didn't have the same firepower. These are all small town banks, meaning it's literally a small town with like imagine Mayberry from the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. Imagine one episode of the Andy Griffith show where John Dillinger comes <laughs> Pops in for comes a, in, yeah. A high hello. <laughs> yeah. So like they're completely outgunned. Their car John Dillinger's gang's cars are rooming. Like there's nothing that these small town cops or even guards at the bank can do. Yeah. Other and than like pray. <laughs> the V eight is really why this era is the gangster era. Like mm-hmm. the, the V eight car is the reason why Bonnie and Clyde are a thing because Clyde was just really good at driving. Like they they weren't good at anything else. <laughs> but dang could he drive. <laughs> like they stole maybe like five thousand dollars total in their careers, but they just had that lovers romantic feel to them and that's why they got so popular (laughs) bank robberies in america sponsored by ford (laughs) (laughs) pretty much but during his spree of robberies dillinger did eventually slip up while he was on a break from his spree of stealing dillinger made his way to dayton ohio to visit a lady friend named mary longnaker and unaware that the police were following him he apparently didn't respect his growing reputation because he brazenly went out in public to events like the world's fair and he even asked a police officer if he could take a picture of him on one occasion. He's just getting cocky with it. <laughs> he, he is the definition of hiding in plain sight. Like mm-hmm. he's living on the edge, but also knows there's so many people and really not that many pictures of me. So, oh, yeah. I mean, again, the only way to consume information was newspapers. And if you haven't read the newspaper that day, you don't know who John Dillinger is. Right. But unfortunately for him, Mary's landlady tipped off the police that Dillinger was there, and they stormed in and arrested him. 
But before he was put away, he was able to get those guns that he had been hoarding to his friends in prison, which they were able to use to break out while he was being put away. So he did come back and get uh, his fr- Pierpont and uh, Fan Meter and those guys got him out. He always comes back for his boys. And once the men heard that Dillinger was then in custody, they immediately sought to return the favor that they owed. <laughs> I mean, that this part is very cool. Well, not the what we'll talk about like people that get injured but that code of like you know what he's not that bad of a guy it's the meme with the the two strong arms <laughs> linking up <laughs> totally. i'll get you out you get me out yeah so knowing that he was only about 100 miles away in lima ohio pierpont and two other men robbed a bank furnished themselves with pistols and approached the jail that dillinger was being held in The men pretended to be officials from the state penitentiary, and when Sheriff Sarber opened the door, getting up from dinner with his wife, he was met by three men with guns. When Sarber reached for his gun, Pierpont panicked and shot him. Then Mrs. Sarber gave the men the keys, and they grabbed Dillinger and ran, and they left Sarber, who would later die, in a pool of blood on the floor. And that blood was now on Dillinger and, by extension, his crew's hands. Yeah, and they even put the wife and, I believe, another guard like in a jail cell. That's a big thing they like to do, especially yeah. Dillinger. Oh, yeah. like So they just had to watch this man bleed out while they're behind bars. Yeah, it's very sad. Oh, for Cause sure. Because like, this guy just lives with his family in the jail. So Yeah. The crew then fled to Chicago and quickly began to put their organized ideas for bank robbing into place officially. Despite having the know-how, the men... They needed brute force. They needed something to intimidate people. So they needed guns. And in order to accomplish this, they went about it the same way they went about everything else. Steal it. They stole them, yeah. (laughs) The crew moved into not one, but two police arsenals in Peru and Auburn, Indiana, and stole guns, ammo, and bulletproof vests. Insane that they stole it right from a police arsenal. <laughs> What's going to stop us? They have all the balls. And they did it without having the guns. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, no guns. It's, it's crazy. In the wake of this daring robbery, the gang was gaining more and more notoriety around the country, and the crew was beginning to be portrayed as shadowy figures by the newspaper, while the police were looking helpless and inept. Eventually, they got the moniker of the Dillinger Gang or the Pierpont Gang in headlines, but in reality, Nobody in the group was really a true leader, and everyone kind of knew their own role, and it, they played that role in order to stay successful. If anything, Pierpont was the, the leader of the group. Right, yeah. It's very interesting that John Dillinger gets a majority of the credit in all of these. Like, he is that, like, just captivating figure at this time that still, even today, is very captivating. He's the gentleman bank robber. Yeah. Tips his cap. As he takes your money. (laughs) Their reign of control was insanely fast-paced at this point. Many of their robberies took place in the span of about a year, with a lot of them compacted in the last four to six months of the year of 1933. So after Dillinger's jailbreak, and once they had guns, the Dillinger gang didn't take any time off. So I'm going to list a few of their bank robberies in about a two-month span. October 23rd, Central National Bank in Greencastle, Indiana. Stole $75,000. Jeez. November 13th, the American Bank and Trust in Wisconsin stole $28,000. November 20th, Unity Trust and Savings Bank in Chicago, $8,700. December 13th, First National Bank in Chicago for twenty dollars 
And December 21st, Security National Bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for $49,500. In total, they stole $214,900, which is valued at just over $5 million today. That's an unreal run. In two months. In two months, $5 million. Yeah, and that's not even mentioning the, the initial ones that he did to get the money for the guns to get his friends out of prison. Right. So he, he's probably nearing the $6 million mark. That's that's incredible. Like yeah. this they are putting in some work. Oh, 100%. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. And it's this time period that the gang really gives themselves a flair for the dramatic, if you could say. Uh to get into these banks to figure out the layout of them, they would pose as alarm system sales reps to case the bank sometimes. Other times they would pretend to be film crew members scouting locations for bank robbery movies. <laughs> yeah. And once this reputation began to spread, the public perception of the Dillinger gang kind of changed because a lot, of ci- a lot of citizens who were disenfranchised and frustrated at the banks thanks to the Great Depression began to look at the Dillinger and his friends as kind of Robin Hood figures because rumors say that Dillinger would help farm owners. He'd help them pay their bills with the money that he was, he's stealing. And this just enhanced that image of him as this gentlemanly criminal. Right. And he... And this could also be a myth, but he didn't steal from people. Like no, he, he solely st- stole from banks. Yeah, which was an institution that ever they were foreclosing on people's houses and land and not giving them their money because the stock market was in the garbage. Oh, everyone was pretty mad at banks at this <laughs> yeah. point in time because it's a relatively not like brand new institution, but like relatively there it's been institutionalized now. So yeah. like it wasn't really that way for a long time. It was just. People had their money and you bury it in the backyard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, with all these people finally realizing what a recession is, kind of hit home. And then it became the good old depression. Very quickly. Sorry. The Great Depression. <laughs> yeah. Not just, and it's not me on a Saturday. It's, yeah, right. <laughs> the FBI, meanwhile, was pushing the narrative that these men were not Robin Hoods. They were dangerous criminals, killing and robbing whoever they could to make a quick buck. And that narrative would be pushed even harder at the end of 1933, when one of the Dillinger gang members shot and killed a police officer while picking up a car at a repair shop. The Chicago police then organized a group of elite officers to track down Dillinger and his goons, naming themselves the Dillinger Squad, not the Dillinger Gang. <laughs> yeah, not the D-Gang. <laughs> it's very, it's, they're so close, you know? I, I thought that was hilarious. They're like, let's call ourselves Dillinger Squad. Isn't that too close to the bank robbers that we're trying to catch? <laughs> nah, fam. <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, the FBI is, this is where they really go into overdrive to try and organize to catch Dillinger. But at the same time, the FBI really can't do anything because none of them have committed a federal crime. <laughs> like right. They've killed a police officer. That's just a state crime. <laughs> you know what? That just is what it is. It's insane. They can't get involved yet. But just before New Year's in 1933, the gang would take a little break and head to Florida for some relaxation time. Some time in Kokomo Bay, Key they, West. They went to like Daytona Beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for this trip, Dillinger would be accompanied by his new girlfriend and the love of his life, Evelyn Billy Frechette. Don't know how you get... The nicknames are so weird. Maybe the middle name was actually William, and they just not from that. <laughs> I don't know where Billy comes from, but that's what everyone calls her, so she's Billy for shit. And even though they were on vacation, not many of the men were drinking, because Pierpont wouldn't risk the men planning or executing any plans intoxicated, so they had to be alert at all times. 
very strict, but for good reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're keeping a gang of ruffians together, you kind of have to lay down your own law in an ironic way. It is kind of crazy how thought out, how like smart these guys, like these aren't just random criminals who yeah. had nothing else going for them and decided I'm going to do the only thing that I'm good at, which is violence and stealing. They're like smart guys in some ways at least right that's why organized crime is kind of one of the biggest like scariest things uh just because it's past like one-offs it's organized it's meticulous it's business-like where there's a head honcho that is just very adamant with who you can consider your their employees and you have to abide by these strict rules like don't get hammered in florida which I've never been able to not do that. I, how could you not? I like the the palm trees. The beach the, is right there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have a sex on the beach. I'm by the beach. Dillinger is like for sure. I'm having sex on the beach. <laughs> Absolutely. And given how much planning went into their heists, between multiple laps around the escape routes, drawing maps, and hiding cans of gasoline along the escape routes, it made sense that Pierpont was wanting everyone to always be at the top of their games, but. The gang still found time to let loose in Florida and almost got in trouble when they shot their Tommy guns into the air to celebrate New Year's. Very bold thing to do. You got Not a lot of Tommy guns going around. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> but I mean, thinking about it from Dillinger's perspective, he's our age, like maybe a little older than us at this right? point. He's like 28, 29. Yeah. So he's just like living, you know? That is He's, a midlife crisis if I've ever heard one. It's a little arrested development, I'd say. He right. didn't really have an adolescence because he was in jail for most of it. So, yeah. But after their time away, the crew decided to head to Tucson, Arizona. On the way there, they all kind of split up. They took their own routes, and Dillinger decided to stop in Chicago. And while he was there, he met up with another gang member. And instead of getting another crew together to do a heist, they just went by themselves, just the two of them, to rob First National Bank in Chicago for some cash to fund their trip. But it went immediately sideways, and Dillinger shot and killed a police officer during their escape while his accomplice got wounded. And this is the first, pretty much the only time that he directly kills someone. He, he doesn't like killing. Yeah. He, he said it himself. He was kind of averse to it. Yeah, I mean, the goal wasn't to kill people in these situations, right? Like, that's strictly about money. Yeah. And then when someone tries to act the hero or just responds to the crime, he kind of is put in a situation where he has to to get away. And yeah, I think it's almost, I think he only killed like right around three, four people, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Like, the number varies, of course, but he's not like a very violent man granted to still kill people right but when you're thinking of like this is an extremely violent man he's a barbarian it's like no he kind of just has to do it out of self-preservation right and not it condoning was, it but it yeah. was said too that he his plan was never to kill him he like tried shooting him in the legs to just disable him mm -hmm. and when he did that the guy fell down and just he ended up hitting him in the heart <laughs> like it, it was just a, a bad situation granted you're shooting at someone still so it's like right. it's still your fault you're actively <laughs> trying to steal money and <laughs> shooting people yeah. like, you still brought a gun to the situation but it's so hard to not like be 
rooting for John Dillinger sometimes. Right. <laughs> like, this guy's awesome. Oh, that's so prevalent in the Public Enemy movie that we yeah. mentioned before. It's like, this guy's the coolest. Johnny Depp, I, Jack Sparrow. Well, even like the documentaries I watched, the guys yeah. are just like, this guy was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even in like museums, if you go and see like a John Dillinger type exhibit or just when they talk about this time period, it's like, yeah, these guys are pretty cool. Yeah. But... This event was the beginning of the downfall for the Dillinger gang. After the botched bank job, Dillinger and Billy continued on to Arizona to go meet the rest of the crew, but before they got there, a fire broke out at a hotel that two of the other members were staying at. When the two men tipped the firefighters $50 to save their luggage, the fire crew grew suspicious, and upon finding that their luggage was oddly shaped and full of guns and stolen loot, the two men were taken into custody. (laughs) That's so funny. I'm just picturing like a bag, but it's just a Tommy gun. Like it's in the form of a Tommy gun. Right. It's like a cartoon where he's like, go save our oddly shaped duffel bags. And it's just a full 50 cal outline. Yeah, right. And also the firefighters were like, no one has $50 nowadays. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like that's a lot of money. (laughs) Right. And I mean, two $50 bills that no one has that much money to give to us. Where did you get this? Yeah. And why are you staying in this? In this La Quinta Inn. (laughs) (laughs) They're like these super nicely dressed guys wearing top hats. Knowing that Dillinger wouldn't be too far behind, the police staked out the area and eventually did find their man along with Billy and took them into custody as well. The gang was embarrassed, to say the least, because they couldn't believe that they were arrested by what they referred to as hick cops. But the FBI also was embarrassed because they had had no luck tracking these people down and... In an accident, these local cops in Tucson, Arizona, got them. Yeah, the fire, the firefighter department, or the fire department got these guys, really. <laughs> right. It's like, I, J. Edgar Hoover's like stomping on his hat in his office right now. Yeah. Like he's happy, but he's also like, I've been trying to do this for four years. <laughs> his panties are all the way in the bunch. Oh, absolutely. Point. His literal panties. His literal <laughs> panties. If you know, you know. After his arrest, Billy was released, but against Dillinger's hopes, he was kind of hoping that he would be sent to Wisconsin because we don't have the corp or the uh, death sentence here. Uh, but he was taken to Indiana to face a sentencing because that's where he's from. <laughs> Yeesh. Yeah. Indiana did not play any games. Not at all. But when he landed, he was surprised that he got swarmed by press. And by this point, his exploits had made him a sort of celebrity. But that was only the beginning of his rise to fame, because outside of the prison, Dillinger posed with his arm on the lead prosecutor's shoulder. So alongside his jailer and the man who was to convict him, John Dillinger put on a smile, kept a calm demeanor, and gave us one of the most famous images of him that we have today, and pushed his reputation as a gentleman bank robber further along in the public eye. Yeah, this skyrocketed, like this picture alone skyrocketed his fame. And just looking at it, it always, it just makes me think of, like, the sports analogy of, oh, good game, man. Like, he was just, like, dapping up, like, after a solid game six. (laughs) Yeah, he's the lead prosecutor's like, yeah, I got you, didn't I? Got you this time. (laughs) Uh, We'll see you next season. (laughs) And then the lead prosecutor lost his job over it, so. Oh, yeah, that's a tough, (laughs) tough thing to come back from. You can't have the most famous criminal in the United States just leaning on your shoulder. (laughs) Right, the guy that has stolen millions of dollars and killed a policeman. (laughs) Yeah, but this is the reason why Dillinger was such an oddity. 
because yeah. he was always so calm and elegant in the way that he did things. Like he never freaked out. He never panicked really. And he just always had this steadfastness and just normalcy about him. Yeah, he was a very calm, cool, collected man in just about any situation. Like they are in gunshot or excuse me, they're in shootouts almost constant. Well, not almost constantly, but like in a lot of these situations. And there's just guns flying around everywhere, but he's pretty much always remain, remaining but, calm. Like, even in the scenario where he did kill the police officer, mm-hmm. to have the wherewithal in that scenario that's so fast-moving to be like, I'll try shooting his legs first. Right. It's like, how do you have that capacity to just stay that reserved and say, I'm going to make a decision right now? He's like, I owe it all to the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his regimented training came yeah. So while awaiting his trial, Dillinger was locked up in Crown Point Prison in Indiana, which was deemed inescapable at the time. And whenever you call something inescapable or unsinkable or anything like that, someone's going to escape or, or your ship's going to sink or... Or the, uh, oh my God, the big airship that started on fire, the Hindenburg. Oh yeah, the Hindenburg. It's, un, it's unflammable. <laughs> it's a big thing full of helium. Like it's, it's pretty flammable. Yeah, let's just retire putting the word un in front of words. Yeah. Like unbreakable, it's out of here. Unsinkable, out of there. Never go, if you say a knock on wood real fast. Transfer requests were made to take Dillinger somewhere more heavily guarded and secure than Crown Point, but Crown Point denied those requests because they wanted to prove a point to everyone that they were just as secure as anywhere else. But that was a mistake. (laughs) That warden was a little bit too big for his britches. Very much. At the beginning of March 1943, after only two months in jail, Dillinger enacted his escape. Holding a fake wooden gun painted black with shoe polish, Dillinger disarmed the entire prison guard staff and locked them up in a cell one by one. After humiliating the guards, including the warden, Dillinger held out his hat and asked the men to donate to his escape, which netted him $15. This is by far the coolest way to break out of any situation I think we've ever covered. Like, he crafted a gun out of wood and painted it black so convincingly so yeah great thing that he was good with his hands yeah to the point where he fooled an entire prison and a warden and even got paid for it this is like holding up a uh like a grocery or like a gas station where you have your hand in your pocket like finger gunning it right right it's that except he disarms an entire prison god i mean that's pretty impressive yeah and there are contentious points on whether he got the gun from other people or he cracked it in himself so right but regardless he did the job I so mean, either way he's out of prison at yeah. this point so after all the guards were disposed in the jail cell he grabbed some submachine guns and hopped in the sheriff's v8 and made a getaway with two hostages later on it would be rumored that those hostages had been paid off by dillinger's attorney to aid in the escape but either way dillinger escaped from crown point prison without firing a single shot from the unescapable prison that was dangerously easy to escape from <laughs> but not this a, is like not a single piece of metal had to be used but this <laughs> is also just saying like how calm cool and collected he is to just casually walk up to all these guards and just one by one disarm all of them that's <laughs> such like insane that's such a heat like by the third or fourth one he had to be like 
there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way that's When is this going to stop? <laughs> right. Like the when he got to the warden, he's like, all right, that's enough. He's like spinning his hat on his finger. He's like, one more, let's go. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, all right, heat check time. <laughs> I, I'm on fire. Like quick, quick pull up, heat check. From the half Give court Give me line. some dollars. <laughs> but in his escape while driving a stolen car, Dillinger crossed state lines. The first time he committed a federal crime, and thus a federal investigation was warranted, particularly by the FBI. Nuts that that's what gets him. Like, stolen does him in. Like, yeah. now the big boys are coming. Stolen car across state lines. All of the violence and murder. That was it. <laughs> it was Ford being like, I shall not have my cars. <laughs> yeah. In Chicago, one of J. Edgar Hoover's favorite guys was put in charge of the Dillinger case. We've mentioned him a couple times. His name was Melvin Purvis. Mm -hmm. Only three days after his escape, Dillinger teamed up with a new group consisting of men like Homer Van Meter, he, he spent time in prison initially, and Babyface Nelson. The crew quickly got to work, knocking off a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then shortly after in Mason City, Iowa, for a total of over $100,000. Just two robberies. And two robberies, yeah. They really have it down at this point. Like, which banks to hit, when, how much money they're probably going to get. Like, they are good. I'm pretty sure at this time, like, some of the banks, to prove how good they were with the money, just put it in glass cases at the windows of the yeah. banks. So it's pretty easy for people to see where the money is. Right, yeah. We talked about that, I believe, during our American Mafia series, where... The black hand literally blew up a bank. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> because they were like, there's too much money in front of there, and we're pretty mad about banks right now. <laughs> we don't like them. So this crew wasn't as meticulously chosen as his first one, but they were still making a lot of noise around town. They went to set up shop in St. Paul, Minnesota, which at the time served as sort of a criminal safe haven for gangsters. It's kind of interesting. The rules in St. Paul, Minnesota were pretty much that in exchange for tip-offs about raids and protection within the city for gangsters, they would share a portion of their gains with the police. And within St. Paul, these criminals would agree to refrain from committing any crimes. So you basically go here, you don't do any bad by them, and they'll keep you safe from law. I mean, it's not a bad setup. Yeah. Did not expect that from St. Paul, Minnesota. Right? It's kind of weird. Like they have a town called or a subdivision there called Little Canada. You would yeah. not expect that. But Minneapolis is very famous, so they're just right, yeah. not too far away. Just don't cross the city border. <laughs> but yeah, St. Paul saw the likes of like the Barker gang. They mm -hmm. all were hiding here for a little while. The Dillingers had it hid here. Yeah, it kind of just was an open secret that you could go here and hide for a while. Was this Port Royal? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. When Dillinger and Billy eventually set up shop in St. Paul, they decided to rent a room in a nicer neighborhood. And once again, they would be caught by accident. The landlady of the building getting suspicious of their comings and goings at odd hours and their once again weird looking luggage walked down to the FBI offices personally and told them she had bank robbers staying with her and wouldn't leave the office until someone listened to her. Oh my God. Could you imagine if they were like, all right, lady, please leave. <laughs> the nosy neighbors, man, they keep coming in handy. Honestly, yeah. I mean, it is just funny. Like, the Federal Bureau of Investigation can't get anything done in terms of information other than, like, someone snitching. Yeah, exactly. Two young FBI agents were sent to the apartment, initially meeting Billy at the door, but when she closed the door and said she has to go get her husband... 
Dillinger eventually opened fire on the agents through the door, and a gunfight ensued in front of the building. During the firefight, Billy and Dillinger got away, but Dillinger did find that he had been shot in the leg, likely being hit by a ricochet of his own shot. That's a tough one to come back from. (laughs) He was like, curve the bullet. (laughs) All of these robberies hasn't gotten shot yet, and he shoots himself. Maybe just every single bullet has to hit flesh, and like, is that his superpower? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got those baby skull-seeking bullets. Oh my! God. That <laughs> that's is a deep a, cut. That's a deep <laughs> cut. Whitest kids you know. Uh, but after fleeing back to Chicago, Billy was finally captured by police when she returned, and she was taken into custody and sentenced to two years in prison for harboring Dillinger. And like I said, this was the love of his life, mm-hmm. and so he was naturally heartbroken he had ideas to just storm the jail where she was staying but his friends eventually convinced him like that's eh, not a good idea like i don't know if we have guns but we don't have like guns guns and you know johnny this is just gonna be you buddy yeah we don't love her like that yeah, she's cool but like we're not on that level yeah <laughs> but at the end of the day he had evaded fbi capture once again And instead of returning to a hideout, Dillinger went where nobody expected, and he stopped in Mooresville, Indiana, for a weekend at the family farm. Afterwards, his father did an interview and said that his son would go straight if he was given a chance. But Johnny wouldn't get that chance, because his next stop was northern Wisconsin. Hey, little Bohemia. I looked up, like, how far... This is, like, north... This is almost Canada, Wisconsin. Yeah, it is so far up north. And the fact that this is where the biggest shootout of his career happens in the middle of bumfuck nowhere in Wisconsin is kind of funny. I can't imagine being the FBI being on his tail and having to pull over to a Wisconsin, like, gas station, for instance, to get, like, directions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you're looking for a little Belgium. Oh, that's a uh, far up north in Anagol. That's go, where you, we're at. You, you got to pa- go a little northeast, northwest. Wait till you see Bill's hideaway. Yeah. You just go up there past Eagle River and you just start going <laughs> a little west there. And that's about where you'll find them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The way you said river, well, that, that <laughs> killed me. That's exactly. It's like Eagle River. <laughs> river. <laughs> we're Canada light. Uh, so. The rest of the crew headed up to a small lodge, as Evan mentioned, called Little Bohemia to lay low for a bit. And upon arrival, the owner of the lodge immediately recognized the men because their faces were basically plastered on every newspaper at this point. Yeah, they can't go really anywhere without being recognized. Yeah. And despite, like, Dillinger admitted, yeah, I'm John Dillinger, and he attempted to calm the man and assure him that there wouldn't be any trouble. They just wanted to lay low for a few days and they'd be out of their hair. The owner's family did get in contact with the FBI, and eventually Melvin Purvis was alerted. The Chicago FBI organized a team to go to Little Bohemia, and on April 22, 1934, two dozen agents from the FBI descended onto Little Bohemia in order to finally get their man. But, since the FBI had only been carrying guns for at most nine months... Many of them had never worked with them enough to be competent, not to mention that they had never shot at anybody. Yeah, that is extremely true and something I kind of forgot about. Like, they just got guns and they're going up against people who have a lot of experience with these guns. Used them for about a year, like straight, pretty consistently. Right. And Dillinger was in the Navy. Yeah. So as they approached, as the FBI approached, dogs started barking. And Dillinger and his gang were alerted that the FBI were there. 
Three men who were at the bar at Little Bohemia attempted to get away from the lodge in their car, knowing that something was going on. But as they were leaving, they didn't hear agents telling them to stop, and eventually the FBI shot up the car, killing one of the civilians and seriously wounding the other two. Yeah, you can probably come to expect that the FBI agents are pretty jumpy. Yeah. With the new guns. Definitely. Well, and especially because these are out of town guys, too. Mm-hmm. Not all, they probably haven't worked together really. So, yeah, it's, a, it's just a scenario for a bad situation to happen. That is so sad. Yeah, they were just trying to get out of the way. and <laughs> They just wanted an old-fashioned at the bar. <laughs> right. Yeah. They want old-fashioned and fish fry. Yeah, put some whiskey sweet in there. Oh, not too much, <laughs> though. I want to taste the bitters. Oh, you don't have any Sprite? Oh, sun, is, sunburst will do. This is such niche comedy, <laughs> like for maybe like 2% of our listeners. Hey, Southeast Wisconsin right now is dying laughing. Oh, yeah. So... With the police occupied with the civilian car, it gave Dillinger and his crew time to run out the back of the lodge and escape into the woods. Dillinger and one of his men found another lodge nearby, stole a car, and got away. But Babyface Nelson was met by agents at a nearby house, and he immediately started opening fire on them. After shooting at the the officers, he stole their car and then got away. Pretty metal. That's very Grand Theft Auto. It's very Babyface Nelson. Like he is very the he babyest. Doesn't, doesn't fear anything. Everyone in every documentary I watched was like, Babyface Nelson is a psychopath. He is in it just for the giggles. I feel like oh, yeah. in a lot of cases. If your name's Babyface, like that's probably a sign that you're insane. Do you think they gave that to him just because he was psychotic? Like we can't call him like. Stoneface killer. <laughs> yeah, right. We can't call him the bad bandit guy that's yeah. really violent. <laughs> right. Like babyface. After the shootouts, multiple men were wounded and one agent was killed along with that civilian in the car. And after this massive failure on the part of the FBI, who up to this point a lot of America was just hearing about for the first time, yeah. Melvin Purvis went on what went from one of the most popular G men to basically a laughing stock. And compounding his rough streak. He also allowed Babyface Nelson to snag his girlfriend and go rob banks with her while Purvis was personally heading a stakeout on this girl. J. Edgar Hoover at this point just won't let Purvis resign because Purvis, after the Little Bohemia incident, even submitted his letter of resignation. And Edgar Hoover was like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, he he really did believe in Purvis. Like he had, he, he, he liked did. him a lot. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he definitely had a lot of confidence in him. I mean, Purvis was a very much up and comer. Like he had his first FBI field office command in like 27. Yeah, like our age. So, but also, and Hoover, he was Batman on the side. So. Right. Yeah, he was Batman on the side. But Hoover also ever like the manipulator of the media, if you will, was like. He mentioned so many times that Purvis, that's P-U-R-V-I-S. Yeah. He's in charge of everything. Don't come at me. Right. <laughs> that's, this is, I'm just here, you know? Yeah, I'm just... I'm the one that's on TV, but he's yeah. the one in charge. <laughs> right, right. After this two strikes, Purvis was pulled off the case and Dillinger's fame was higher than ever, giving him the new moniker of public enemy number one and a $10,000 reward on his head. So, like we mentioned... First time public enemy number one has ever been used. Yeah, $10,000 on his head and I believe five grand for just information yep. leading to his arrest. Big money. Now you're thinking he 
really can't go anywhere. Yeah. So after then he knew that him and Van Meter, the guy that he was in the new gang with that he had known from prison, they knew they needed to try something to ease that pressure around them. So to do that, they visited the home of a mob-affiliated man known as Jimmy Probasco, and supposedly while there, a doctor named Wilhelm Loser took $5,000 to change their appearances. Mm-hmm. This consisted of giving them crude plastic surgeries and attempting to remove their fingerprints by burning them off with acid. So, they were doing some, like, tests here. Like, yeah. that has to work. Acid works on everything else. <laughs> yeah, so he, he, like, used hydrochloric acid and then just scraped their fingerprints off, from what I read. That. And you want to know how they tried to do plastic surgery on his face? Oh, uh, did they just, like, cut off a little bit? Nope. So, according to theaestheticguide.com, Lesser used tendons from a kangaroo to stretch out Dillinger's skin and alter his facial features, but it didn't do anything, really. (laughs) Like, I always knew he got or attempted to get plastic surgery, had no idea kangaroo was involved. Yeah, (laughs) I I was scouring the internet trying to find out, like, what he actually did. What they put in him. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, kangaroo? (laughs) The rest of the... (laughs) The rest of his days, he just like throws in the occasional hop. Yeah. Can't hop backwards, though. (laughs) Yeah. After taking a month to heal, Dillinger and his crew would rob their last bank. Accompanied by Van Meter, Babyface Nelson, and one other anonymous accomplice, Dillinger arrived at Merchants National Bank in South Bend, Indiana, right before noon and instigated a robbery. Daytime robberies, man. Like, right in the midst of the day. It's crazy to me that it's not like nighttime or anything yeah broad daylight well i guess they can't really do it too much during night just because they can't see anything on the roads like there's not lights on the roads to get away like they're True. really just relying on what their cars have so yeah i guess it makes sense but it's just crazy no, to me i totally agree like high noon like when everyone's i mean maybe even out to lunch yeah <laughs> let's have a shootout in the streets yeah like the old west the police responded quickly, and in the ensuing gunfight, Van Meter would shoot and kill a police officer. Babyface Nelson, meanwhile, would shoot a teenager in the hand after the kid jumped on his back and started hitting him with his fists. Oh my god. And multiple hostages would be hit by police and citizens as they were firing at the gang. As they attempted their escape, Van Meter was shot in the head and was killed. And in the end, the crew got away with around $30,000 and... When they split it all up between themselves and the people who were giving them information and everything, it was about $4,800 a person. Not really worth it to lose a person and to have several other innocents die. Yeah, exactly. Because they would use, like, they used human hostages a lot. Oh, like, all the time, as yeah. Just human shields, but they never hurt them, ever. Mm-hmm. Like, they... I believe in the Public Enemies movie, they had them ride on the like the running boards of the cars, and right. they would just drop them off, and the girls would be like, "Oh my gosh, it's John Dillinger!" Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, it it was like a a practice they never intended to use to hurt people, and in this case, it was just that all of the civilians got in on the fun <laughs> and right. decided to start shooting as well. So at small town like Midwest, so they're like, "Ooh, something's happening in town." Grab her guns! Grab her guns! <laughs> I mean, that's how. Bonnie and Clyde ended up getting caught. It's just a posse. So <laughs> they had posse's enough, got them. <laughs> had enough of their nonsense. After this close call, Dillinger moved again. He settled into the apartment of a woman named Anna Sage, who was a brothel owner in northern Indiana. 
He had apparently met her through his girlfriend at the time who worked for Anna Sage. And at the time, Anna Sage was kind of in a rough spot herself because she was facing deportation back to Romania. And in this pinch, decided she was going to make a deal with the FBI in order to save herself from being sent away. So she called up the FBI and said, I know where John Dillinger is. And if you work with me, I'll set him up for you so that you can get him in exchange for me being able to stay in America. Yeah, that is, I mean, you got to kind of play the cards you're dealt. She's facing deportation, so snitch. Fell in her lap. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it happened all in a few of the other cases where all these guys get arrested also just kind of falls into the other people's laps. It's always landladies. (laughs) It's always landladies. The three times he's been caught have been landladies, except for the one in Arizona. The best investigative people, real or fantasy, Sherlock Holmes. Nosy neighbors. (laughs) Nosy neighbors and the head of the HOA. (laughs) Exactly. So Anna Sage organized a plan with Melvin Purvis and set a date to put that plan into action. On Sunday, July 22nd, Anna Sage told agents that Dillinger, his girlfriend, and herself were planning to go to the Biograph Theater to see a movie. Purvis himself staked out the Biograph while two other agents posted up at another theater, and Purvis waited in front of the theater directly, and as he did, Dillinger walked by him and looked him in the face while he walked into the theater with his girlfriend and Anna Sage, who was wearing an orange skirt and white blouse to make herself easy to spot for the FBI agents. Which is kind of crazy. Did Dillinger just not consume the news? Like, did he just not see that, this Purvis man? Just didn't register to him, I guess. I like, guess he was also on a date with two girls, so maybe he was... Yeah, he's like, let's, let's watch the movie else. first. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to see this flick. Right. And Mayhem in Manhattan. He was the definition of blending in, like, it, mm-hmm. hiding in plain sight. So, I mean, maybe he was just so used to just looking at everyone normally that didn't want to rise suspicion. Right. Kept his cool. Yeah. The agents waited for the movie to let out, and once it did, Melvin Purvis gave the prearranged signal by lighting his cigar. But nobody saw it. (laughs) So, Dillinger began to get away, and as the agents tailed him, Dillinger eventually realized it, spun around, and began to reach for his gun. As he did, agents opened fire, shot four or five shots at Dillinger, and hit him two or three times, basically killing him on the spot. And as he was laying in his own blood, people nearby began to crowd around and were dabbing their handkerchiefs in his blood as morbid souvenirs. So someone out there probably still has one of those. Ew. (laughs) Someone's like, do you want to see my treasure? (laughs) Yeah, and they say we're like obsessed with true crime now. Yeah, dabbing a handkerchief for a souvenir. <laughs> well, it's like the uh, Velisca Axeburger house when the whole town just goes through the house and grabs souvenirs grabs and things. stuff. Yeah. yeah. John Herbert Dillinger's body was taken to Cook County Morgue that night while hundreds of spectators waited outside of the building to hope, in hopes of seeing his body. His body was taken to the McCready Funeral Home the next day where it was placed in a hearse and given a police escort back to Mooresville where Audrey... Dillinger's sister identified the body. He was then buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis on July 25th, 1934. Despite being dead, his fame never went away, and movies like Dillinger in 1945, all the way up to, as we mentioned, Public Enemies in 2009, depict Dillinger's life and all of its excitement and its grit. 
And in his wake, the FBI began its trek to become what it is today with J. Edgar Hoover at the helm. It's crazy that they made the first movie just basically a decade after he died. Yeah. I guess like nowadays, like you see documentaries that the main story that they're doing it on like happened last year. Yeah, exactly. But like for that time, it probably took a few years to get like production done on movies. So they, as soon as this man died, Hollywood was like doing that. Well, and this was right around the Hayes Code time too. So right. like they probably couldn't do it for a while because they were going to yeah. get strikes for violence and stuff. Right, right. But yeah, J. Edgar Hoover, this is now his time to shine. He really pumps it into overdrive at this point. A great publicist, that's for sure. Yeah. But perhaps one of the most memorable rumors that endures about John Dillinger to this day is that he had an abnormally large penis. An unreal schlong. Thanks to an autopsy photo in which his arm is lifted up underneath a sheet, making it look like he has a absolutely massive hog. <laughs> Do you think that was one of his dying wishes? Like one of his boys has to pay <laughs> off the... I mean, that I don't disrespect that for a second. His will only says that, like, pose my body to make it look like that. Right, like old baby face, just slip them a 50. Yeah, right. <laughs> the legend still endures to this day, with some believing that his genitalia is housed in a jar at the Smithsonian. But despite his sexual prowess and his luck with the ladies, there's no documented evidence that he had any abnormally large penis, <laughs> and he was probably just a charismatic and likable guy you know what i'm glad not everything in history is recorded <laughs> yeah right exactly leave that one up to the the mystery yeah we can do that's it's very funny yeah it's like it's paul bunyan and the blue ox like if the folk tales of america it's that and like jd's p <laughs> yeah I, I love the but like we get john dillinger having that rumor and then like russia has rasputin and in his case it's actually true <laughs> like, yeah it's so funny that that's like the standout things that everyone will remember. So, like, man, what a memorable person in history did all these either despicable or great things for the community. How big was this? Yeah. Was he huge? Was he huge? <laughs> was he no. packing down there? Sorry, bad question. Was he huge? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's insensitive. Yeah. Was he large? <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me when. T t tell me when. <laughs> <laughs> How big was he? Uh, but yes, that is the life and times of John Dillinger, public enemy number one. I think he truly is a fascinating subject of the American outlaw. Like yeah. it's Billy, Billy and this, no, Billy the kid, or just those classic outlaws. But in this case, it's Tommy Guns and Banks and. The more modern example of it like it is he is a captivating figure he is very much so all the pictures you see of him especially the ones when he's outside the uh the jail and stuff it's like iconic now and for in the public enemies movie i think johnny depp did a really good job portraying mm -hmm. that like charismatic really luck like go with the flow kind of guy but oh absolutely like and also that calm and cool persona i think that he portrays it perfectly yeah like in all the different situations definitely like it is such a such a good movie yeah go and watch public a, enemies <laughs> right yeah <laughs> but yeah such a great episode and such a captivating figure definitely and ties to wisconsin so we kind of had to <laughs> we're in the news yeah. little bohemia i'm pretty stand sure up. pretty sure if you go to little bohemia today they still have like the doors and stuff that were shot up in in the building somewhere 
like you can go see them i'm so, sure there's probably still bullets somewhere yeah there's bullet holes in in certain areas i think so yeah it's pretty sweet that is fun well, if you want to continue the conversations about John Dillinger or any of our other episodes, you can find us in a few different places. First off, we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Gems of History Podcast. You can subscribe. Uh, we currently have one level of patronage. Uh, $5 gets you a sticker as well as the ability to vote on customer, customer, member suggested topics. Uh, which, I mean, you guys have been doing a fantastic job of giving us those topics to cover. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at gems underscore history, Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. You can find us, in addition to all the other things that I've said, on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook. Just search Gems of History Podcast. Absolutely. So yes, the uh, the Little Bohemia Lodge does still have the windows with the original bullet holes in them. But they got a two-star review because someone said, I ordered a medium steak and got a raw steak, and the onion soup had no flavor. So, take the good with the bad. Maybe it was the Lodge just telling them to grow up and have a rare steak. <laughs> yeah, live a little. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Uh, we, will, we will have an episode for you guys next week. It's going to be something a little different than usual, uh, but... We will be having something for you guys to listen to. Uh, we are very excited about it. It was something that was really fun to do. Mm -hmm. And going forward, it's going to lead to another opportunity that we will talk about in the future. Uh, but yeah, we'll have something for you. And then the listener episode will be pushed back a week just because I'm going to be out of town all of next week. So we are not going to have time to record. And we will do that when I get back. And then we'll catch back up from there. So just so you guys are aware, that's the plan going forward. But uh Everyone have a great week. I guess two weeks since we won't have like a, a standard episode for you guys next week. Uh, and we will talk to you guys soon. All right. You guys all stay polished out there. <laughs>